philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 31. Peak Experiences, Memory, and Emotions. Okay, say you're really interested in peak experiences, and you want to use uh, qualitative and quantitative methodologies. And you've got quite strong views of what peak experiences are, but you're not quite sure if your strong views relate to what other people think. So what would be the first thing that you would do as a researcher if you were exploring peak experiences and you were in that situation? What would you do? Okay, I'll pretend I'm in that situation and you're my focus group. <laughs> okay, so I've got a focus group and they're pretty sporty types from the looks of them, okay? And I figure they know a fair bit about peak experiences of various forms. So I open up the question and I ask a very general question. When I say the word peak experiences, what comes to mind for you? So quite genuinely, what comes to mind for you when I say peak experiences? So, so you, you equate peak experiences with, with quite powerful transitions in life, like a, a family member passing away, starting a new career, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so I would be taking notes of the focus group that one member of the focus group associates them with very powerful emotions about loss or about newness or freshness or change. Yeah. Okay, so that would be the notes I'd put. What else? What other things would you think of? Like just really concrete examples of peak experiences. Yeah, study abroad. So anything that takes you kind of outside of your comfort zone in a way, is that it? Is that the element of it? Or whole new world, beautiful. So a sense of freshness and newness and discovery. Yeah, good. I'd be getting out the I think personality questionnaire and I think it's too hard to ask about peak experiences because they are. They're kind of, they're kind of slightly uncomfortable things because... They're about freshness and newness. They're about taking you outside of your comfort zone. They're, they are about very powerful emotions, and they often are about thresholds of change and transition. Um, okay, let's just start the lecture and see how it goes. Okay, so this is roughly what I'm going to cover today. I want to talk to you about positive emotions and functions, and I want to talk to you about Eisen's research on positive emotion, and then Fredrickson's model of Jordan and Booth, which is about how positive ethics influence both our thinking and our behaviour. And then I want to talk to you about quite a zany little thing that I've put up online, which I really must admit I do quite like, which is about how you can use positive ethics to repair or, or rescue people from experiences of suffering and trauma. Then I want to talk to you about someone that, that I find quite powerful, Davidson, He's a neuropsychologist predominantly, but he's got this nifty theory that we all have an emotional style, and it's kind of a tray-like thing. And when he describes how he measures emotional style, for some reason, it's just my personality, he talks about a sort of a left frontal asymmetry, and I always imagine a bulge in your brain at the front, which is not really how it is, because he actually says there are no differences in the morphology. It's, if you do an fMRI, it's not like your left uh, frontal part is bigger than your right, but it is that, that you've got more electrophysiological activity in that left frontal region, and it's quite stable across times and settings and contexts. And it's associated with having an affective style that's a very positive affective style, and that has all sorts of implications. 
Then I want to look a little bit at positive psychology, which would you believe has recently been championed by Martin Seligman. Do you have, has anybody taught you about Seligman in other courses? When I was at university, he was the learned helplessness man, right? About, you know, when there were no connections between your responding and environmental contingencies, you kind of gave up in despair, basically. So he obviously had a, a positive conversion in his later years and suddenly started talking about positive psychology. One of the things that fascinates me about Seligman is he has a, a model of what makes a person resilient. And he seems to have the ear of uh, the United States military in some way, because he's managed to get this largely untested model adopted um, in training soldiers who are about to go into war. And one of the, and now the research is starting to come out about the effects of that. One of the effects of assuming that you're sort of invulnerable and that you can control anything is that you don't admit to fear or vulnerability and you, you're a bit rash, it seems, in your behavior, racked as though you're bulletproof. So you've got to be very careful, I think, that you've actually really tested your model before it gets put into action and applied settings. Because if I've been a, a soldier who's been powerfully told by my sergeant that this positive psychology is going to make me feel a lot better and I'm, I'm going to go into battle and I'm going to do better, it would be very hard for me to say, actually, I, I feel just as scared as before, but now I've got the demand characteristic that I can't admit to that because that would be letting down my sergeant in some way. So there are issues about the application of these things, I think. Um, a lot of what positive psychology describes sounds very much like agency to me, and I'm interested in what you think of that. And then I want to talk to you about the fact that even though a lot of peak experiences seem to suggest that you're powerfully in control, that you've got this incredible sense of agency, a lot of the literature also suggests that you kind of lose all sense of yourself at all, that there's this total loss of any sense of your being there. You just feel sort of one with the universe, basically, one with the task. And any kind of self-reflective self-awareness seems to disappear. And that's kind of uh, been championed in a lot of areas, uh, particularly by a philosopher called Hubert Dreyfus, who says that experts are mindless. That once you get really expert, it's kind of like going on automatic pilot, you know, when you've driven home and you don't even remember the route that you took or the street signs or changing gear or anything like that. Dreyfus says that's what expertise is like, that it's highly automatic functioning, and that's not something I particularly agree with, although I think we feel like that sometimes. Then I want to talk to you about the concept of flow. Have you heard of the concept of flow at all in your general reading? No? Okay, there's a guy with an almost unpronounceable name called Chiksitnahali, I think it is. And everybody calls him Dr. C for obvious reasons. Okay, you'll see how it's spelled. And apologies to Hungarian people for my pronunciation. I have got the YouTube clip that tells me how to pronounce it, and I still can't pronounce it. I'll put the YouTube clip up online for you so you can try to learn how to pronounce it. But another thing that's, that's in the area of um, big experiences right now, and I don't know what I think about it, it's called mental toughness. I don't like the label, I have to admit. It sort of sounds insensitive and brutish. 
but it does seem to be linked with flow in interesting ways, and it does seem to be linked with resilience bouncing back from stress and daily hassles. So I thought you might be interested in that. Something that certainly links into the loss of agency is a, an unusual concept called absorption. And as I go through, I'll, I'll tell you for each of these concepts how you can measure them so that, and I'll mark little projects that I think would be doable in a year if any of you are on the lookout for those sorts of projects. And the last article, which cost you your handouts, basically, is the one called Vantage Sensitivity, which I haven't yet put up online. And it's a really fascinating new perspective. I just kind of hadn't thought of this at all myself, despite the fact I'm totally obsessed by positive affect. So it's, it's great to discover it. Okay. It just it brings to mind, you know, my parents just about threatening to murder us when we were in the back of the car when we were kids going on holidays and we'd start singing to me. Okay. So positive emotions. Um, they improve performance on tasks that we tend to see as being indicative of creativity. And it's a really hard thing to measure creativity. So the sorts of tasks are things like generating novel uses for a boring everyday item or innovative problem solving. And my absolute favorite test of innovative problem solving um, is called the candle problem. It's an oldie but a goodie. Okay, so basically, do you know it? Does anybody know it? Yes, one person knows it. Great. I thought it was pretty famous. So a person's given a candle, they're given a box of tacks and some matches, and they're asked to attach the candle to the wall so that it will burn without dripping wax on the floor. Okay, cool. So you've used the box. Excellent. That's really good. And I think when you, when you list it, um, sometimes it makes the box seem like a thing, which is great. So you, that's absolutely the right answer. Um, but if you handed it in the box, some people think they've just got to use the candle and the tacks. And so, and there's no way they can put the candle on the wall. But of course, if you empty out the box, you can tack the box onto the wall and then melt the candle wax so that it sits on the box. So it's about being able to think outside of the box. Outside of the square, I know that was bad. Right? That was bad. Sorry. Okay, but the amazing thing, and I didn't know this when they first told me about this um, problem, is that positive ethics participants outperform the controls on this task. So if you're in a really up mental state, you'll do better than the controls. And so the responding of those who are in a positive affective state shows greater cognitive flexibility. They're much more able to put ideas together in new and useful ways. In other words, they can overcome what's called functional fixedness. And that's actually um, like the a hallmark of, of a sort of cognitive set which is excessively narrow. And it functions almost like a prejudice in that it constrains your view of the world and it limits your sense of what's possible. And sometimes if you're excessively um, problem-focused, problem-solving-focused, you'll forget you know, the, the other elements of, of the situation. So these results have been found both with affect inductions, where you find ways to actually put someone into a positive affective state, but they're also discovered in naturally occurring positive affect in applied settings. And they're discovered not just in the laboratory, but in the field if you go into um, organizations, and you can find them with diverse measures. Okay. 
So this article I really put up online for you, it's from 99, but it's actually a real weird beauty, I think. What they show is that if you put someone into a positive affective state, they're actually not just going to narrowly try and solve the problem. They're going to be quite playful, and so that leads to cognitive elaboration. And they can look at the problem in quite flexible ways, and they can look at the parameters of the problem, like the box, the tax, and the um, candle, in quite flexible ways. So they're going to actually produce a whole lot more thoughts. If you get them to say, how many uses can you find for a house brick? They're going to be able to think of more if they're in a positive affective state. And they're going to have many more non-typical thoughts and innovative solutions. So what positive affect seems to give you is flexibility and a slight zaniness, okay? A slight sort of unusual uh, style of thought. I like this one. So positive ethic means you can you can think of that zany response to the road rage character. Are positive ethics near arousal? This is actually quite an issue because once you're not in personality class any longer, you will probably come into contact with people who would say, Well, I know what emotions are. They are arousal plus balance. Are you high in arousal or low in arousal? Is it a positive or is it negative arousal? And that's it. They'll say that's all there is to emotions. Well, what I'm suggesting and have been suggesting throughout this course is that positive affects are a lot more than mere arousal. Okay? And the different positive affects have different effects on your thought and behavior. So it's not just high arousal positive affect, I don't think. So I don't think that they're just arousal, because you can get very high arousal from negative affects like fear, and they do no better than controls on the sorts of problem solving that uh, the people like Ashby, Ison and Turkey have um, researched. Now, are negative and positive affects ends of a single dimension? Well, this, I think the very strong answer to that is no. People like um, Taligan and Clark, who, who have devised the positive affect, negative affect scale, suggest that they're actually orthogonal to each other, that you've got, you can be high or low in positive affect, high or low in negative affect. People like Drew Weston say, if you don't just work with the general population sample, if you work with a clinical sample, there's actually a third factor, a third dimension in there, which is intense negative affect and it's predictive of psychopathology. So no way is it a single dimension. So keep an eye on that. Like if you if you're creating a piece of research, don't assume that you can measure someone's affectivity on a sliding scale from plus to minus, because you're going to miss out on the fact that in some states you can be high on both, basically. Like I could be filled with total excitement and utter fear, okay? Before a bungee jump. In other words, I, I'm not usually in a single unified emotional state. Most of your states are emotional cocktails. And negative affects are certainly not simply the opposite of positive affects, not in terms of what behaviours they cause you to emit, and certainly not in terms of their cognitive effects, what they do to your thinking. And it seems from the research that I've been reading, and that this is the article that I'm citing, that there are quite independent neural pathways for positive affectivity and negative affectivity. So I definitely wouldn't say they're opposites of each other. So I used to say 
that what positive affect does to you is it makes you flaky because it makes you very open-minded and creative and playful and exploratory. But I got sobered when I reread this article today because actually I noticed a paragraph that I must have missed in my previous readings where they said, but it also promotes something that, that's quite a detailed style of thought. So I wasn't, I wasn't wrong in my initial thought. They say, if you're in a positive mood, you're not going to be nitpicky. You're going to use really broad heuristics, you know, which are, are kind of like rules of thumb that are good enough to solve the problem, even if they're not absolutely strictly accurate. Okay. And, but that I sort of took that to mean that you just had a global or slightly broad brushstroke way of thinking. But that's not actually the case. It seems that if the task is at least slightly interesting, and that's the crucial bit, if the task is at least slightly interesting, you're actually going to be very careful, very thorough, very open-minded and systematic in your processing. So I think there are lots of advantages from the looks of this um, to positive affect. So I would strongly suggest, given the kinds of exam questions that I set, that you do a positive affect induction before you go into your exam, because that's going to give you that kind of rangy, broad brushstroke, flexible style of thought that will optimize your responses. Okay, Fredrickson's broaden and build model of positive emotions. What Fredrickson suggests is that positive emotions create an upward spiral, and it's a limitless up to upward spiral. There isn't particularly a ceiling effect on how it can influence your function. So they're assuming that whereas if you're in a state of anxiety, you're going to quite narrowly target sources of threat in the environment. Sure, you're going to scan the whole environment, but you're only looking for threat, right? So it's a kind of narrow scanning of the whole environment. Whereas if you're in a say, state of curiosity or interest or surprise, you're going to be looking for just about anything in the environment. And it's going to increase what you, you do to things, like you're going to be quite playful and testing things out, seeing what you can do with it. And it also has been found that positive effects seem to affect our bodies in a very positive way, with increased immune function, cardiovascular benefits, particularly a drop in cortisol. And I think it's true that you can test cortisol in saliva, so that's a, a very readily accessible kind of behavioral indicator if you want to do a small project and it's and they're linked to a reduced risk of stroke so positive affects widen the array of thoughts and actions that are called forth they make you playful and exploratory they facilitate generativity so you create and generate new thoughts and models and behavioral flexibility they also broaden your mindset and that's something that's seen as having a sort of an indirect advantage in the longer term. Because what it means is that you actually are on the lookout for ways of actually broadening your personal resources, like your social support networks, your friendships, social connections. It also means that you're going to have a repertoire of coping strategies rather than just avoidance or running from it or I'll think about it tomorrow. Okay? And because curiosity, interest, and surprise are the exploratory emotions, they're actually going to increase your awareness and knowledge of the environment. So positive effects have been linked to resilience in the face of stress. Because if you can 
maintain your positive emotions and recover quite quickly from negative affects without relying on defense mechanisms like it didn't happen, denial, then you're actually going to have exactly that kind of attitude to the world that a securely attached child has with a mother who's been attentive and attuned. Okay? So one of the things that we're interested in at the moment, and we've just started this research with Cricket Australia, I never thought I would study sports people in my whole life. I just about get a rash thinking about sport, let alone you know, watching it. But here I am, accidentally part of a team, and what they're interested in is um, mapping the success of players in response to both minor hassles, like you're out on the field and someone sledges you, or they criticize your style, or, or you're out for a duck, or you know something goes wrong, or you don't get picked for the team. So how do you how do you cope with that? Can you sustain positive effects in the face of those quite powerful hassles, stresses, and setbacks? And so we want to sort of explore what predicts resilience in certain players. Because unfortunately, once you start in the opposite opposite direction there is actually quite quickly a downward spiral. Um, as soon as you don't respond well to environmental challenges, say you avoid or you narrow uh, your response repertoire by staying at home and drinking, okay, and rather than going out and meeting people or going for a run, right? As soon as you start to do that, you're actually going to change your bodily environment. You're going to... Uh, increase your stress reactivity because your anxiety level is going to stay high. And, uh, and it seems that that is linked to the failure of your brain to produce new neural connections. Because one of the things about your brain is that it remains very, very plastic even to old age. And neurons that fire together wire together. So if you're getting involved in new activities, you're actually opening up your pathways and sometimes causing the growth of new um, nerve fibers. So if you have a sort of predictable, homogenous, restricted environment, your brain's going to shrink, is the short answer. You're not going to sort of grow new connections. And so this is actually going to have an effect in terms of your resilience, your immune function. It's going to change the way that you think, because you're going to go for that sort of overgeneral phenomenon that I was telling you about last week if you go into depression which impairs your memory and the richness of your access to the past. And of course, if you're not going out, you're restricting your social support and your social networks. So both ends are what are called recursive processes. By recursive, I mean they kind of, they feed into each other and they go in the same direction, either downwards if it's a downward spiral or upwards if it's an upward spiral. So the, the fact that these processes are recursive and dynamic means once you start to go in a negative direction, if possible, you want to turn that around and change it before it gets too much of a grip, if that's seen as possible. And they, in the literature they call it allostatic drag. I've got no idea what that means, but I just thought I'd tell you that that's the word they use. Okay. But what, what allostatic drag seems to do is that it leads to further languishing because what you practice in the way of attention or behavior or coping tends to become automatic, if you've got bad habits in how you cope and bad habits in how you think and remember, 
those bad habits are going to be quite quickly become schematized and automatic. And as soon as they're automatic, you don't notice them. You don't notice that you're watching the world through these negative schemes. You just think that the world's a really tough place or that bad things are happening to you. And you don't pick that it's because of your attention and your learning and your focus. So when you get a, a progressive restriction of your adaptive activities, it's actually going to have a progressive deterioration in your memory, your mental functioning, your immune system and the health of your heart. So that psychosomatic link is very strong, I think, between emotional responding of various sorts. So positive affects have a very strong bodily effect, and negative affects also have a very strong bodily effect. So is it all doom and gloom? Like one of my friends, when I was telling her about Davidson's work that I'm going to tell you about in a minute, she said, oh, I keep telling my husband there's no point in his trying to tell me to get optimistic. I'm obviously just someone who's not optimistic, and that's never going to change. Isn't that true, Doris? And I'm going, um, <laughs> I don't think so. But it means that you probably have got a tray-like tendency right now, either to be more positive affective or negative affective. And just because you're dispositionally there right now, and that's part of your personality now, it doesn't mean it can't change. I don't think. But I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure what Davidson would say about that. But I put my faith in the fact that existential therapies, like the paper I put online for you, what they actually try to do is get you to change your emotional style, but you don't do it on your own. The role of the social is utterly crucial, and that's one of the major themes of this course this year. Last week I was talking to you about the way that audience uptake is very powerful. And that's, that's one example of how the social powerfully influences personality. Well, I think the social very powerfully influences how you experience emotions. And if you get into a negative or upward spiral, the social is going to be playing some kind of role in that. And most experiential therapies permit you to come face to face with another person so that you're able to face and bear your negative affects without dissociating and without denying them. Do you remember last week I was talking about um, the, the way that you attend to your affects being quite a crucial thing? You can either attend to them with a ruminative focus or you can attend to them with a reflective focus. But if you're attending to them with a reflective focus, you have to let the negative affects hit first and then take a new perspective on You can't just avoid them and sort of shun them before they have impact. Because avoidance tends to be linked with quite powerful sort of flashbacks, intrusive thoughts. So avoidance in the long term is usually a very negative thing, even if it solves problems in the shorter term. And so the whole role of the other in psychotherapy is that they make you stronger than you are on your own. It means that there are things that you can face and tolerate and bear. And the paper that I put online for you suggests that once someone's actually able to face the negative, they're then able to pick up on what they call a non-finite transformational spiral, and I quote, I love this language, fueled by positive affects. So they think that there are there is innate in all of us 
a tendency towards the experience of positive affects. And that once you can get recurring habitual negative affective patterns out of the way, those positive affects are there, ready, and waiting. And I suppose my question is, are those positive affects there, ready, and waiting to the same degree in all of us? Or are there individual differences even in that? That's a, a, a quite real question, because I don't actually have the answer. Now, have you heard of a person called Damasio at all? Descartes, Aaron? He's kind of major emotional theorist, and he refers to what I would call curiosity, interest, and surprise. He calls those the vitality affects. That's the same clusterings that Tomkins used, but he's just got this rather lovely label for them. And he refers to them as spontaneous physiological rhythms, and you, you notice them in that your body has these arousal fluctuations. And once they're unleashed, this can actually result in cascading positive change. That's so different from the model that I've been presenting so far, which is of cascading constraints. You know, you, you don't have basic trust. You go down the path of distrust. That limits your capacity for empathy for others. That limits your capacity for the morality to develop. But this is actually quite a different sense of cascading change. It's actually an upward spiral. And what Damasio is quite famous for is a phrase called the somatic markers. In other words, he says, you can always pick what emotional state you're in by what your body's doing. So if your head's down and your chest is sunk and your breathing's shallow and you're not looking around much, right? That's the kind of somatic markers of a kind of despondent kind of emotion. Whereas if you're in a really great mood, it's kind of got a present, great, you know, or you've got fleeting smiles, you know, you're looking around, there's head nods, you're sort of tilting your head on the side because you're kind of in, intrigued, a bit like birds, you know, when they're kind of really looking at things, or your dog when he's trying to work what the hell you're saying to him, you know, that's sort of, that's fine. But how do you unleash the positive ethics? But the thing I don't like about positive psychology is it, it all, all sounds so easy, like you just say a few affirmations about how great you are in the mirror. And voila, you have a great attitude to life. I just don't think it's that simple. Partly because, being my kind of psychologist, I assume you've got all sorts of automated defense mechanisms that get between you and the world. And you've got to sort of disrupt those first before you can really uh, get at the full range of experience. I also think that you've got all sorts of little inhibitions about life that are just automatic. They're just nature. Somebody asks you to a party, oh, don't go to parties, right? That's who you think you are. Also, I think we have quite dysregulated effects. That's what I think rumination is. I think rumination is when your thought is being driven by affects that are outside of your capacity to control them. And I'm sure you've all felt that. When, you know, you can't fall asleep. You keep thinking about this one thing that you possibly can't change or that isn't even as important as it feels at that moment, but nonetheless, your poor old brain just can't switch off. So how do you sort of move out of those spirals that drain your energy and that constrict your world and make you withdraw from possibilities? Well, I truly think it has to entail some form of the company of another, be it therapeutic or friendship support. 
Because if you can't soothe your emotions, you usually have to have someone else present to be able to do so. And often what's emphasised is not just what's spoken about, that's kind of left hemisphere, inside, cognitive awareness, different thought patterns. It's not just that. Because it's not just, therapy is not just about insight, about drawing new conclusions. It's about feeling differently. And one way that you can feel differently is if someone has eye contact with you, if their tone of voice shapes and changes how you feel, um, even the rhythm of their speech can influence how you feel. And last week, what I was trying to suggest was crucial about accessing your affect your autobiographical memory in new ways, was that you had to get back to the sensory specific. You had to get back to that ESK, that event-specific knowledge. If you stay at the level of generalities, it's quite possible for that stimulus capture of rumination to occur. Well, same thing with therapy in a sense. What you want is someone to be telling you about specific events, specific details with lots of sensory information. And in that way, there's a kind of an entrainment that happens. You know, entrainment, if you're standing talking to someone and you suddenly realise that you're in exactly the same posture as them, or that you've got your legs placed exactly the same way as them, or that you're sort of, you're holding your head in the same way, that's that kind of unconscious entrainment. Because as emotional animals, we pick up very quickly on the contagion of emotion. We catch the feeling of another person. We catch the mood of another, which is why, you know, you can end up having real bitch sessions if you all get into negative affects. It can really go, go you know, savage towards the end. So what that's really saying is that if you want to change how you feel, it's got to happen at the level of the body, not just at the level of the intellect or at the level of cognition. It's got to happen emotionally, and it's got to be something to do with somatic markers. You've got to pick up on the bodily cloud of what's happening in you at a particular moment in time. So one of the things that they suggest is visible in psychotherapy is that because emotions are not just feelings, they don't just affect your mind, they are demands for action on your body, like rage is a demand to smash the other. Fear is a demand to run away. Okay, so they've got these action tendencies. That's why they're much more than just valence plus arousal. They're old actions. Like in the past, they would have been movements, which is why they're so hard to contain and so hard to soothe, because they're making you feel like doing something on the world or to others. So one of the things that happens when people start to move out of downward spirals or out of depression is that they actually feel lighter in their body. And there sometimes will be quite a different look to the person's face and to their scan patterns in the world. Okay, this is probably too detailed for you, but I just wanted to signal Davidson's work to you because I just find it completely fascinating. And I'll put his very brief and very readable article online. But I... We're, we're very shaped by him right now in the research that we're doing. I wanted to see if I could do a really preliminary analysis of the research that we've done, because we've got about um, 27 questionnaires in from professional Australian sportswomen at the moment, and I was hoping that I could 
analyze all the different scales that I'm going to tell you about now and give you the results, but I didn't manage to do it in time. I'll see if I can do it for you next week, but no promises. Okay, so what Davidson says is, how do you map someone's individual affective style? How do you do that? What is a different affective style? And what do you think yours looks like? Do you think you're largely positive or negative? Don't think too much about it, just kind of your conclusion. And you probably know from the way that you inhabit your body, roughly. Or do you peak on both, positive and negative? Because of course that's completely possible. Okay, one of the one of the components of Davidson's model sounds very much like temperament to me. Because temperament is so much about sensitivity, I think. Like, are you the sort of person that leaps in the air when a car backfires? That's one of my hallmark descriptions of how you pick someone's temperament. What's the threshold for you reacting? Do you sort of turn around slowly to see what's happening? You know, what are you, oh my God, what was that? Right? That, that's the sort of temperament variable. Also, how much of a response do you make to a stimulus? How long does it take you to go from no reaction at all to the absolute top of your reaction? That's rise time to peak. And also, what's your recovery time? You know, if you've been really startled and anxious, are you, is that it for the rest of the day or week? Or are you fine, you know, in the next couple of minutes? Okay? So the reason that I think Davidson's quite complex is that he actually wants to describe the brain circuitry that underlies two fundamental forms of motivation and emotion. And it's sort of basically approach and withdrawal-related processes. For those of you who did philosophy of psychoanalysis, if I, if I could just do a little note here, it's not relevant to personality, it's relevant to my semester course from last semester. I'm not sure whether Davidson really has got his drives and his affects distinct. I think he's blurring drives and affects a little bit. So that's just that's just for those of you who are interested. Okay, so here's how he defines affective style. He says, among the most striking features of human emotions is the variability across individuals in the quality and the intensity of what he calls dispositional mood. So when you wake up in the morning, do you, are you roughly in a good mood? And how intensely so? Or does it vary? And he says, also, not just looking at what you are in your resting state, that's your dispositional mood, but what are you like if, if you, you're given an incentive or a challenge? What if somebody says to you, race you to the next lamppost, or bet you can't beat me in pool or something like that. You go, yeah, right on. Or do you go, oh, I don't know. Right? That, that's what he would call your affectual style. But, and this is what does me in, it's like you actually can't draw a firm and fast distinction between your affective style and affect regulation. Because if you're really cool and automatic and swift, in regulating your emotion, you might wake up in the worst mood in the world, but by the time you've had that coffee, you look like Einstein. It's like, yes, ready to go, do you know? So what's your affected style then? Do you know, I, I just, I'm just not sure. So I'm quite fascinated by the way that it, what it does is it opens up the possibility of change, I think, that your affective style may not be, you know, hardwired in. It may be plastic and modifiable. So he says, and I thought it's quite good to give you a definition of, of emotional regulation, 
It's a whole broad array of processes. It's, there's not a single process in emotional regulation. And it doesn't just mean that you've got to soothe and diminish your emotions, which is what attendant means. Sometimes emotion regulation is that you've got to up your emotions. I can't imagine that for me, because I don't think that ever be a moment where I actually need to up my emotion. I'm I'm out there on a cup of tea basically, you know, so I envy anybody who's actually got to upregulate. Good on you, good lucky things basically. Mine's all about attenuation, I think. Um, you know, because I'm I've got one of those pacey temperaments, I think. So what I like about this, his uh, theory is that it, it, it just chimes all the things that I think matter, in that he's saying there are certain features of your attention that matter. And that's what I've really been trying to hammer home with the Lambian Marcel model of emotion. Sure, there's bodily clout. Sure, there are somatic markers. But how you attend to that matters. And that's flexible. You can learn that. You know, you can shift and change that. But you don't just want to distract or avoid if you're facing a potentially aversive stimulus, because as I've tried to suggest, avoidance is okay in the short term, but it has long-term costs. But last week I was talking to you about people that are quite good at mood repair, so I might give you a really aversive stimulus, like accident, and you might say, it was a total accident that I met the first love of my life, right? In other words, you've even redefined what the word means in your response to my cue, and you give me positive memories. And you wouldn't believe how many people did that in the experiments that we ran when we were coding. We were expecting, unthinkingly, that we'd get negative um, incidents from a cue-like accident. And we got lots of positive ones. We also never believed that anybody would give us a negative memory from a word like baby. But we got heaps of negative responses. I remember my little brother and my mother loved him more. <laughs> I found ways to put him in drawers and things like that. <laughs> you know? But we did get quite hilarious and wonderful memories from that. So that notion of self-generated imagery to replace emotions that are unwanted with more desirable imagery scripts, that's part of your affective style as well. So affect regulation is all about enhancing. Sometimes it's about sustaining your motivation. If you're in the middle of the exam and you suddenly feel like carrot cake, you can't go, you've got to keep writing, or about soothing. And how you do that is your skill repertoire, basically. And if you don't have a skill repertoire, that's what people often will try to convey to you via your patterns of attention, rumination versus reflection, via distraction, which was the Teasdale study that I told you about last week, but also via mood repair imagery, which is one of the things that we were exploring in our research. So is affect regulation automatic or controlled? It's both. Because if you've now got an automatic emotion regulation style, it probably didn't start out that way. You had to progressively automatize those processes. Initially, they were quite voluntary, probably. But in the end, they get more and more automatic with practice, so that you don't even know they're there. Which is why, if they're good coping mechanisms, great. But if they're bad coping mechanisms, you're in a bit more trouble, because they can actually lead to a downward spiral, just because they're kind of offline, unconscious, outside of awareness. So 
for something to become automatic and unconscious is not necessarily good or bad. It can be either, depending on what it is that you're talking about. Okay, if you want to assess someone's affective style, and this is really relevant, I think you've got to make sure that you don't just rely on a single mode of assessment. That's why I've really been trying to hammer home in this course that you use multimodal forms of assessment, that you don't just use self-report questionnaire, you also use open-ended, qualitative, projective measures that tap into less uh, rehearsed processes within an individual, less controllable processes within an individual. So both qualitative and quantitative, I think, are scientific. Because what you might find is, say someone like me, I'm quite loquacious, you know, I, I love language, I'll produce language at the drop of a hat, you give me a self-report questionnaire to write a paragraph for you, I'll write you a paragraph, no sweat. And you could ask me about positive or negative emotion, I'd have something to say, right? But you shouldn't necessarily assume that because I've got a very low threshold for producing things in response to verbal cues, that if you wire me up, you're going to get a low threshold there. I might be quite stoic. In other words, I might have quite a high threshold for producing certain physiological changes. In other words, people are going to profile really differently across the different indicators of emotion. You do get some parallels, like people that are avoidantly attached they tend not to be very physiologically aroused either. So you do get things that go together like that. But you get other things that are really different. Like if I'm a, a, you know, a highly charming psychopath, I might seem terribly empathic if you talk to me in self-report. But if you wire me up and check my the startle in response to highly aversive images, there'll be nothing going on at the startle level. And you'll be going, huh, this doesn't match. So it's a source of fascination, I think. So it's important not to assume that individual differences in any parameter of affective responding will generalize across response systems like physiological and verbal, or even that they'll generalize for the same emotion, because you, you sometimes get very strong differences. How are we going? Oops, time for a cup of coffee. Okay, thank you very much. That was Lecture 31 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.